0: nobody asked for another podcast so here you go this is yet another intro podcast hi everyone uh, thank you for joining us today we have bucky Moore from kleiner perkins with us today so bucky maybe you can tell us a little bit about it yourself
1: yeah hey Vitali, thanks for having me it's uh, it's been fun to watch this community grow and ultimately the podcast spring from it is uh, really exciting to be a part of but yeah, so just quick background on myself. So I'm a partner at Kleiner Perkins, like you said. Kleiner Perkins is a venture firm in its 50th year in existence. We've been investing for a long time and had the great pleasure of being a part of some companies that we often say go on to make history, right? So the Googles, the Amazons, the Electronic Arts, more recently companies like Figma. And what I do here at Kleiner Perkins is I lead the charge on all things infrastructure software related. I spend my time thinking about how software is developed, how we're processing and understanding data how we're leveraging that data to create intelligence systems and in AI. And then ultimately, I also think a lot about info security and cybersecurity and how all that kind of ties these pieces together. And so in terms of my personal background, I've been in the venture business now for about nine and a half years. And my approach to the business over that period has been quite consistent in the sense that I've been partnering with these very technical founding teams at the earliest possible stages that have some kind of unique insight that they are looking for obviously capital, but also support and advice in coalescing into a business. And so what I try to do is Be a great partner to those people in the sense of helping them build their team, connect with the right design partners, customers, be a thought partner to them. Be, of course, a shock absorber and support to them during good and difficult times. And ultimately, that's what I love doing. And I get out of bed every morning thinking about just how lucky I am that I get to work with some really amazing people that are pushing the state of the art on all these different areas. And I'm not sure what else they'd be doing if not that today at this point. So I'm probably too far gone to go do anything else other than be a VC at this point for better or for worse. And then before I got into the venture business, I was actually a member of Cisco's corp dev team. So Cisco, as you may know, is a company that is very large, employs a lot of people, and is in a lot of different industries. And the way that they've managed to find their way into those different industries is surprisingly the result of acquisitions. And so as a result, the corporate development team, whose job it is to identify and partner with the business on executing those acquisitions, It was this kind of crash course for me to learn a little bit more about just like the surface area of impact you can have with infrastructure, just how interwoven interwove it into every industry and every company it really is. At the time I was at Cisco, we were having these crazy debates, things like whether virtual desktops or SaaS would be the end state, things like whether test and dev was the use case for cloud or, or it would be something much bigger than that. And I look back on that experience, one, with a lot of gratitude because I learned just so much about just how the infrastructure space works. and. How a company like Cisco has been able to build such a large and defensible business over time. But I've also learned a few lessons, which are to really run towards the new. And what I mean by run towards the new is I referenced some of those silly debates that we were having. Being inside of a company like Cisco, who of course sold servers that virtual desktops were run right on, and of course sold data center switching and all kinds of other appliances that would go in physical data centers, end up in this place where you fall victim to a bit of LUDism. And I think LUDism is a really tempting and easy thing to fall victim to in investing. And I think what I've learned is that most of the time it pays to be optimistic and it pays to run towards the new. And I think had I known that at the time, I would have pushed back much harder on those debates that we were having inside San Cisco when I was there.
0: For the folks that have a little bit less visibility into how venture capital firms are structured, can you go a little bit more about that? What does it mean that you're Kleiner Perkins in-for-person? Does it mean that client persons were looking for a partner in that space and then they somehow find you and you're the specialist on it? Or is it something that you always wanted to do and just find a firm that has this need? Like how these things come to be that certain partners get certain specialties in firms?
1: Yeah, so I think there's, first thing I'd say is that there's really no right way or one way to do venture capital. And there are many very successful investors who have built a career as a generalist, meaning they invest in consumer companies, internet companies, software companies, hardware companies, and so on. But I think as the business has become a lot more competitive, what you're starting to see is that specialization is increasingly the norm. And I really believe deeply in that specialization. And the reason I believe that way is that I really think that in order for you to be the best possible partner to a certain type of founder, let alone an infrastructure software founder, having sung knowledge that is domain-specific in terms of how their space works, what has been the recipe for success of other companies in their space, what are the unique characteristics of their companies in terms of how they consume capital and what the key milestones for progress are both early on and and later on. Those things are really additive to one's ability to, I think, serve a founder really well in a space like infrastructure. And so as a result at Clyde Perkins, we come back to this notion of having a major empire. And what I mean by a major is the space that you know best, the space that you spend most of your time in, the space that your network is most prevalent in. And as a result of having that major, you end up being the domain expert for the firm. But when those opportunities come through our door, we want to make sure that the right partner is interacting with that founding team. And we tend to make that decision based on what that right partner's domain experience is and how it maps to the opportunity.
0: So why are you passionate about infrastructure and developer tooling? What is different about that space than, let's say, vertical SaaS?
1: Sure. I think the first thing I would say is, and and you've heard me say this once already on this conversation, is what I saw at Cisco was just the enormous surface area of impact you can have building infrastructure. What I mean by surface area of impact is the ability to build products that serve the needs of almost a uniformly horizontal group of companies and industries. And I got really excited about that because I just saw it as really high leverage, frankly. And when I think of technology, I think of it as leverage. And so for me, the opportunity to provide leverage via technology and be a part of that across such a wide surface area was really alluring. The second thing I would say is that The way I think about investing is often through the lens of trends. And when I think about trends, I think of what are opportunities to index to a trend. And the reason for that, I think is very simple, which is that there's a lot of people out there who look to VCs as like these oracles or people that can see around quarters and peer into the future. And I personally don't see it that way. I I really think it's the builders and the practitioners that ultimately have that ability to see what's coming. And so what I try to do is really just spend my time supporting and being close to what I think are the smartest and most brilliant people out there who then show us where these opportunities lie. And so coming back to this notion of specialization, I think having that network of people that are highly concentrated in infrastructure is very accretive to this. What I would also say is that your ability to bet on the right markets and bet in the right spaces ultimately comes down to whether you know where the best people are and what they're working on. So relative to vertical SaaS, infrastructure software is unique in a few ways. Like One is I think ultimately, the service area of companies that you can serve is inherently much broader, right? Vertical SaaS is vertical because it serves one industry. But I think underneath that, there are a few kind of like business model implications that I think are really clear and interesting to call out. So the first is of course, like most infrastructure businesses tend to be consumption based, right? And the reason for that is because by way of providing infrastructure, you're providing a service that people are going to consume. And that depends on how large their application is and other characteristics that go into that consumption. In vertical software, what you tend to see is that you're selling applications to to knowledge workers or maybe even not knowledge workers like deskless workers, but ultimately you're selling seats. And so I think the resulting go to market from that and the rhythm of that go to market is very distinct. The other thing I'd say is just coming back to the surface area point that I keep making. You're ultimately building a product for many different types of people, which means it's often the case that you have to prioritize breadth or depth. Whereas in vertical software, say, take a company like Viva, they've spent a decade or more going just deep on the needs of pharmaceutical companies, building more products that serve that, that audience, building more services that ultimately are very unique to the pharma and the biotech world. Whereas an in infrastructure, you can certainly continue going deep. And I think developers being the key persona in this case, like obviously there's a number of examples where A business like AWS has built one product or two products, say like S3 and EC2 that have been extremely uh, sticky with developers. And then what they've done is they've used that position to go and build more and more products over time and consume more and more of the value chain. And so I think depth is possible, but at the same time, there are distinctions that you don't have to think about vertical sauce. right? You have to be able to build products that serve fintech companies, as well as manufacturing companies. You have to be able to serve software companies in the same way that you have to be able to serve consumer internet companies. And where I'm going with this is that, well, I think there is distinctions there. You do have to maintain some sense of like horizontal applicability in order to access the full TAM. And I think that's very different than vertical software.
0: So some kind of knowledge that has been spread around kind of founders for quite some time was that you have to solve for a very specific pain and you have to solve for a use case. And then maybe you can extract a platform from that. Like, an obvious example can be Salesforce that started with Salesforce automation and then added the platform on top of it. And it seems that in infrastructure, we're maybe reversing that trend a little bit. So do you believe that we should start thinking about things differently? Or is it still the same that you have to identify a pain first and solve that and then go for a broader platform
1: approach? My take on this is that if you look at what the recent, like the really truly great platforms that have been building infrastructure over the past few years have done, they have focused on a very specific pain, So there could be some counter examples that I'm not thinking of. Even if my business is hosting people's applications, I'm gonna pick a very specific type of application and I'm gonna build an API and I'm going to build a hosting offering that caters very specifically to the pains of deploying and hosting type of application. If you take a company like Snowflake, they started off by essentially allowing you to scale your SQL queries out across many machines in the cloud. And in doing so, they went after that very specific pain point of like when I am working with my existing data warehouse in an on-premise data center, I don't have the ability to separate storage and compute and scale them independently, which means that if I do want to scale my query out, I have to scale both, which is expensive and wasteful. So at least in the examples that come to mind for me, I actually do think that each of these companies has targeted a very specific pain point. But I do think sometimes learning as a platform from the beginning can mask that. But underneath it, I think you'd be surprised that most of these companies really are targeting like a very specific pain with a very specific persona. In mind. So how would you go about evaluating
0: when let's say a founder like myself comes to you to pitch a new idea, and let's say I follow your framework. Hey, Buck, here is a specific pain that I'm solving today. What is the leap of faith that you need to make in order to see maybe that pain is a little bit limited today, but there could be an excellent platform extracted from
1: it? Yeah, so setting aside things that are obviously very integral to making an investment decision, like the team and your appraisal of that team as well as your appraisal of the product and the technology. Just talking about kind of the market and the pain point and how that maps to the market. I keep using this term horizontal. Like, I think that is a core learning for me in this almost decade that I've been at BC is that the companies that get really big, the pain they solve is horizontally held, meaning it can be applied across many different types of companies, many different industries, many different sizes of companies as well. And the reason for that is the market opportunity that translates to tends to just be much meatier in size. The thing that I then would look for is... The extent to which there's a source of urgency that will breed like really actionable and durable demand for a pain in this problem. So I think the snowflake example is obviously the easy one to come back to where people have been doing data analysis with SQL for many years and the opportunity to immediately solve for those acute pains of scaling it out and being able to consume those resources more efficiently without having DBAs in the fold. That is a very strong sense of urgency in the sense that solves a very immediate pain point. And I would also contend that if you think about the fact that this really coincides with a business's move to the cloud, that demand seems durable in nature, meaning there's real runway to it. And on the other side of the ledger, if I look at a space like RPA, for example, right, where we were investors at Cliner Perkins, a company called UiPath that ultimately went public and led that the first iteration of that space. I think this, this question of like how meaningful the runway to the source of urgency to solve those problems are, is a really interesting one to pick apart in the context of UiPath. So ultimately UiPath and RPA more broadly allowed businesses to solve a very simple problem, which is they have these very legacy systems that often don't have APIs and require humans to interact with them to drive a business process forward and the RPA of course, emulates the clicks and text inputs of a human in a way that allows them to reduce the human labor associated with that business process. The challenge that I saw, and again, it was such a big opportunity in such a fast growing company that we were very thrilled to be a part of the story. But the challenge that I saw with that space and I think is proven true is just how quickly AI was going to advance the state of the art in terms of what it would take to solve those kinds of problems. And what you're seeing today with language models and diffusion models and some of the like really interesting kind of action based approaches to automation that are spawning from that technology is that is in fact true. Meaning the number of big new RPA deployments, I have to believe, I haven't seen the data on this, is going down because there are some really novel versions of AI being a problem that I think are just superior in nature. So the issue that I had with that space or the question or risk that I ascribed to it was that I wasn't sure that the source of the urgency to go and solve the problem that RPA solved was, was one that had a lot of runway to it for that reason. So that's something I think about a lot. And I think the reason why you're seeing so much capital pour into businesses that are essentially moving X to the cloud for you and allowing you to take full advantage of the cloud and its economics and elasticity is the runway of that trend feels very long, multi-decade in nature. And so as a result, the amount of time you have as a company to ride that wave and service all that demand that's going to come about is significant such that you can build real scale as a business and not just real scale, but durable scale, meaning that revenue is going to be sticky and you're going to be able to expand with your customers over time because of how long that journey is for them to move their entire operations to the cloud. So talking
0: about trends, Actually, I want to ask you this question on trends that end up being maybe false trends or maybe misunderstood, because you mentioned Snowflake in a couple of your examples. And one of the interesting things about Snowflake that actually very early, it wasn't an obvious choice. And I think they even struggled a little bit to raise their, I think it was a series B, because at that point, everyone thought that the way to build a database company, it has to be open source, it has to be NoSQL. It has to be maybe based on MapReduce, whatever that common knowledge was at the time. And it proved that kind of that wasn't the case. And actually SQL and just great data warehouse in the cloud were actually the way to go about it. Curious if you had any learnings from that, how you think about investing in companies today.
1: Yeah. So just to pick apart the dynamics of the Snowflake example one last time, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, which is like, The best startups, the companies that go on to be truly legendary and enduring are the ones that really debunk conventional wisdom. I think Snowflake is yet another example of that. So at the time, there were these companies going around trying to commercialize this technology called Hadoop that was built around the MapReduce paradigm. And what they were really doing was going to large enterprises and saying, hey, the right answer for you to scale out your data analysis and data processing is to upscale your workforce on this concept of MapReduce. So they shouldn't be writing SQL anymore. They should be writing MapReduce jobs. And what you're going to get for that is you're going to get scale out. In a way that you haven't had before while that obviously was something that caught on in the market and became very popular snowflake came around and cleaned up that mess which is they gave people their sequel with those same benefits but much less operational overhead and you could argue that some of these hadoop companies didn't see the cloud coming the way that they should have but ultimately what i think is that if you can deliver the the next wave of a space without forcing customers to learn a new paradigm say like a concept like MapReduce instead of SQL you're going to win big. And we've seen that over and over again. And to me, a really interesting question about Snowflake is not like how far will they go, but it's ultimately, I think the same thing is going to have to happen with Python. If you think about all these data practitioners out there that are writing their jobs in Python, there still really isn't an answer or at least an agreed upon answer as to like how you scale those jobs out. There's certainly some really interesting innovation happening there and some companies and open source projects that are in pursuit of it. But to me, like so who's going to build Snowflake for Python is a really interesting question and something I think a lot about currently as an investor. But like I said, I think these these best companies, they really debunk the conventional wisdom. And in, in Snowflake's case, like to your point, they weren't open source. They were built for the cloud only. And I heard this funny story that I heard secondhand, which is there was a time where I think during or right around the time that they were trying to raise that Series B, Snowflake was visiting Goldman Sachs doing a sales call. And the person at Goldman Sachs said, hey, I love everything about this, but I'd really like for, to be able to run it in my data center. And the person at Snowflake, who I won't name, said, look, you're going to be running in the cloud before I run in your data center. And today, Snowflake is now, I think, counts Goldman Sachs as like one of their largest customers. These things happen gradually and then very suddenly, number one, and number two, coming back to that Luddism point I made earlier, there's often like Luddism on the part of the customer as well. And I think the best founders know how to break through that in a way that is done with grace without necessarily making the customer feel stupid, but also trying to challenge them to think differently and be innovative. And I think Snowflake did a really good job with that. And then the last thing I want to say about Snowflake, and then we can talk about other examples, is I realized to your point that they had a really challenging initial start to the company's life in the sense that it was, took a really long time for them to generate revenue. And as a result of the lack of revenue generation, fundraising was a bit trickier than they hoped it would be. What I've seen now is that I think they've educated investors like me and I think also inspired a lot of founders to have the courage to go and take on these really big ideas that sometimes require you to be in R&D mode for at least a couple of years in the initial part of the company's life. And when I think about those ideas, those are exactly the kind of ventures that I want to be a part of. These companies that are going to have deep conviction in a new idea, a new architecture, and have the conviction to be willing to be patient for a couple of years. And of course, you also have to have investors who are willing to be patient with you to go and put those ideas to the test and come out the other side with something that, um, again, they believe is about as close to, if you build it, they will come as it gets. And I'm seeing that now with some companies that I work with that are taking a similar path. And it's actually really inspired me to think differently as an investor, which is to run towards these big builds, as I call them. And be patient with those big builds, because if you've ascribed value to the technology appropriately, out the other side comes a product that is going to be really differentiated, really defensible, and ultimately a business that you can build around that product that allows you to grow really fast, which of course is VCs is what we get excited
0: about. So this is Ray, because this is an area I'm personally also very passionate about. And this is very core to my belief that I think there's a lot of companies that are not really A-B testing or lean starting their way into existence, but actually It's brave founders that have an idea on how the world should look like, and if they're successful, have the time and conviction. And in some cases, they also need the capital to make it happen and make it work. Obviously, one example is the platform we're using today, Zoom, which I think also for two years only had engineers working on the platform. But the but the company that I'm actually curious about and is, I think, one of the success story for client Perkins is, is Rippling. That also, obviously, Parker Conrad, after his kind of experience with Zenefits, decided to start Rippling. And he had a very clear vision of what kind of an HRS, or actually much broader vision than just that, should be. And it's not infra in the traditional sense, but I think it will be great for some of our listeners who come from the infrastructure space to know more about the company. I so would love if you can talk about their story.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked about Rippling because I actually think there's some really clear lessons to be taken from that company that do apply to building infrastructure companies. And I actually carry those lessons with me daily and try to impart them on the founders that I work with and meet. But the first thing I must do is just give credit to my partner's mm-hmm. moment to and Ilya Fushman for that investment. I had nothing to do with it, but I can tell you that hearing Parker Conrad step into our office and present that company at the Series A, it was one of the single most compelling pitches I've ever heard. So that was like the first thing that really left an imprint on me when I heard the pitch for the first time. The second thing, and I think that this starts to kind of get into some of the lessons learned that I think are relevant to infrastructure software businesses, is this notion of what he calls a compound startup. And so you'll hear him say this when he does podcasts or interviews or anything, that he refers to Rippling as a compound startup. So what he means by that is that instead of doing what we talked about earlier, which is focusing on a very specific pain point and going very deep on that pain point. He sees opportunity and he sees a surplus of opportunities out there in software to go and build these compound stirrups, which do the exact opposite, which is they take on a really broad surface area of a problem space. And the way that they differentiate is by bundling many flavors of functionality together. In Parker's case, it was the full HRIS suite, among a bunch of other things that would typically be sold to the HR buyer also combining some of the core systems that you see mid-market to to media large companies use. So things from single sign-on to identity to device provisioning and a bunch of other stuff right on that side and then on the HR side, everything from payroll to commuter benefits to generating offer letters, just the list goes on. And obviously it's expanded dramatically since we invested. So this compound startup is this idea of taking a bunch of stuff that is previously delivered to a market as point solutions and combining it into a product. And in doing so, the idea is that the sum of the parts is greater than the individual and in that sense you end up with this place where you can go to your target buyer and sell a story of consolidation of cost savings of efficiency and also ambition and what i mean by ambition is that i think the customers really appreciate the work that has gone on into crafting a product that allows you to combine so many products into one this way and i think what they then feel like they're doing is buying into a future where they get to take that vision even further with you and What I've seen with Rippling is that not only does this lead to some really attractive like SaaS metric dynamics, like very high net dollar retention, very high gross retention, and of course, like very high top line growth when done properly. But I think it also just allows you to kind of carte blanche to go and redefine these spaces because you're doing something that no one has really ever had the ambition to do. And as a result, you can run experiments, you can incubate products inside of your company at a rate and level of velocity that like these point solution companies just aren't even thinking about doing, nor do they have the DNA to do. How does this relate to infrastructure business as well? Look at companies like GitLab, look at companies like Wiz. If you squint a little bit, you say, wait, these are very similar companies in the sense that they're building these compound startups. And so what I think this has taught me and what I bring to my interactions with founders when I see opportunity too is I really do believe that there's many compound startups to be built in infrastructure that have yet to be built. And I think Wiz is a great example of this on the cloud security side. I think GitLab is a great example of this on kind of the developer tooling and DevOps side. And I think there's many more to come and I'm very excited to see how that plays out. Like somebody's got to do this on the data infrastructure side, for example. And in fact, there is a company that I work with called Rudderstack that has a similar vision in the sense that they handle the event streaming, they have a reverse ETL product, they have a forward ETL product, and they're building a bunch of other things around that orbit that essentially allow you to have one unified substrate for how you move all your data around. I know you're also building sort of a data infrastructure company for your target buyer. I can imagine you see similar opportunity. And so... I think the data infrastructure space is one where I see a lot of opportunity to build these compound startups and it feels like we're just scratching the surface of that.
0: Thank you for pointing out. And by the way, we also kind of position ourselves as a compound startup that tries to solve multiple problems. In our case, inside the engineering organization, there are many kind of factions that require, let's say some sort of analytics. Everything from the management, but also the DevOps, the QA, even the HR people and the finance business partners to engineering all need some view of the same data. And we were also very heavily uh, inspired by the Rippling story. I remember when Parker wrote that memo for his series A that I think your colleagues have led. I read it and, oh my God, this is, this is exactly the type of company I want to build. But, and this is my actually next question, a lot of the examples in that space tends to be kind of repeat founders. So whether it's Barker Conrad at Rippling or Asaf at Wiz or George Kurtz at CrowdStrike, which also can be packaged into it. Would you say that this is probably should be something that people try to do? when they already have the credibility and perhaps the ability to raise the capital? Or you think that this could be also pulled off as for a first time founders as well, maybe like the example of
1: a Yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to be a successful repeat founder to pursue a compound startup idea, but I think there's some sort of, with hindsight, reasons as to why some of the names that you mentioned happen to be in these very successful repeat founders, which is, number one, what you typically see with a founder who's doing it for the second time is they go from kind of product-obsessed to distribution-obsessed. And I think the dynamics from a distribution standpoint, that if you pull off this compound startup idea correctly, that you get are very attractive for the reasons I called out earlier. So that's one. The second to your point is that to pull this off, taking on a really broad service area and the implications of that from a financial perspective is, of course, it's more expensive because you need more humans inside of your company working on these different ideas. And I would say the average caliber of the people that you need inside of the company early on tends to be a lot higher, right? Because if you think about each of these different areas that you're building in as combining into your compound platform, each of these are competing with individual startups, right? And so as a result, you have to have a very high degree of trust with the individuals that are leading each of those different products. They're almost running their own mini startup inside of the company. And I think when you come back to who these people are that have pulled this off, notably people like off at Wiz or Parker at Ripley and Georgia CrowdStrike, that credibility that they have from their past successes has allowed them to raise that capital. And it's allowed them to attract that talent that they can empower to go and build these mini startups inside of their platforms in a way that is good enough to compete with the best of breed solutions that are people out there. So yeah. I think that a first time founder should lean away from it. No, I do not. I think if they have conviction and that's the kind of company they wanna build, they should absolutely embrace it. But I do think that the implications are it's gonna be a more capital intensive business, which means you do have to ask yourself, am I capable of meeting the needs of my business in that regard? And it's gonna be a very talent intensive business. You're gonna to have to bring on very entrepreneurial people And what I can tell you is that these people who their opportunity cost of joining your startup is going and starting a company themselves, they are going to ask themselves, like, is this someone who I can develop a lot of unique learnings from? And typically the people who they feel like they can develop those unique learnings from are people that have experience that they don't, which is starting a company again. So that's why you see repeat founders tend to thrive in this environment in a way that you see fewer first-time founders do not.
0: Yeah. So I'm very glad that we went rabbit hole that I, I didn't expect. Going back to one point that you mentioned, which is also the second of founders become more distribution obsessed than kind of product obsessed. And especially as a first-time founder myself, I've heard it before, but before starting a company, I, to be honest, I didn't get it. I said, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm going to go and ask some people what they think about my baby. Everyone said it's pretty. And then I went and started building a product. What do you think some of the mistakes that first some founders make when actually thinking about distribution, go to market and kind of all that thing, like what are some of the mines that should avoid?
1: Yeah. So I think the first mistake that I see commonly is this belief that product and go to market are these independent bodies from one another. And first you go figure out the product, then you go figure out the go to market. What I've seen the best companies really harness is this sort of relationship that is like inextricably tied between the two. Meaning when you're making product decisions... Part of the calculus through which you make those decisions should be like, what are the go-to-market implications of this? For example, if I design my product to be very easily self-serve adopted, that is going to have go-to-market implications. Those can be good go-to-market implications. Those can also be bad go-to-market implications. Conversely, when I'm thinking about my go-to-market, I want to make sure that the way I design my company is in a manner where the go-to-market that I build is going to support the product that I'm trying to build. And I think that I see a lot of companies and a lot of founders treat those two very separately. And I think that they're inextricably tied and they should be thought of in unison with one another. So that's definitely one big thing. And I think an example of coming back to to Parker Conrad or Rippling is that these distribution obsessed founders like himself, part of the reason that I believe he wanted to build that company, just my observation from afar, he has not said this to me. Part of the reason I believe that he wanted to build that company was because of how favorable the distribution dynamics would be. You don't see that very often with first-time founders. Typically, they're starting with, here's a pain point, here's a product or a piece of technology that I can develop to address that pain point, and then I'll figure out the rest mm-hmm. from there. And I think coming back to this like second-time versus first-time founders thing, these second-time founders, they're thinking about oh, a lot from the beginning, and as a result, they tend to design companies that can grow really fast mm-hmm. if they, if those pieces fit together in the way that they envision.
0: Yeah, similar to that, sometimes I have founders who come to me for an advice and they're saying, hey, how do I hire my first enterprise salesperson? And by asking them a question, like, what are you selling? How do you sell it? And they, what is the ACB? And they're like, okay, I'm selling this problem. There's like a 5k ACB. Thinking, Maybe you should think about it, you know, a little bit about that thing before you go and hire salespeople, because it's not exactly clear how you will sustain these salespeople. And so there is that concept where, like you said, like your product and your pricing and everything about it, it has to be tied the way you sell the product, then would love for you to touch more on that.
1: I might even say it's not so much the way you sell the product, but it's the way the customer buys. And ACVs are a great example of this, which is I've seen countless examples where founders who've essentially gotten really excited about an idea, developed a product that embodies that idea that they go take to customers. And what they realize is they hadn't bought through necessarily like the value created relative to value captured piece of this. And to your point, like if you have a business that revolves around selling $5,000 contracts to customers and they take, say, 90 days to, to buy and implement, that's no man's land there. And that's an area that I think is a really challenging place to get out of as well, because really your only choices are to raise prices, which often requires building more product. And then this question of well, you starting from scratch and trying to iterate with your customers to figure out something that works, that's a big, bit of a grander value proposition. It sometimes then forces you to sacrifice what that sharp tip of the sphere was that was actually creating the demand in the first place. And so I mentioned like self-serve is another kind of like key implication of this. There are other cases where I think I've seen companies that have built products that are just really hard to adopt, meaning the problem that they're solving is really complex. It requires a tremendous amount of configuration and handholding on the customer side. And as a result, their sales cycles are really long and their conversion rates are really low because of the amount of work that the customer has to put into adopt and competing with other priorities in the organization is always challenging, especially in these times. And so I've seen some companies that have just not necessarily thought about ease of adoption from the beginning, but also with ease of adoption, like price points that are commensurate with your go-to-market. Since we talked about
0: the RPA space
1: beforehand, I think in the last couple of years,
0: what happened is too many founders started thinking that the only way to do go-to-market is this bottoms-up, whatever, open-source, freemium, or all that. And without realizing that there are some spaces, like you mentioned, that are buying software in a different way. And also the way they're adopting it requires a little bit more handholding. And RPA is a perfect example of something that's probably fairly difficult to just go to other websites, sign up, and just start using it yourself. And I would love to also hear from your experience about these use cases where it's not always about developer first adoption and starting with some open source or some premium, but there are use cases that actually do require more help from the distribution organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said about how the macro influences like self-serve versus higher touch go-to-market models as well, right? So like, I think in a world of low interest rates, companies are flush with capital, companies are flush with headcount. And that headcount also is able to then use that capital to invest in ways that they think are going to generate an ROI, but they're also willing to be much more speculative with that. So as a result, what you saw is that, especially over the kind of the heyday of the 2020, 2021 era, is that developers were extremely promiscuous with the products that they were willing to adopt and pay for on a self-serve basis. But of course, as the macro tightened, wallet's tightened, And those credit card swipes that they were able to make to buy this new tool, to try this new thing, started to become a little bit more scrutinized. And as a result, I've seen a lot of businesses that were heavily reliant on developer-driven self-serve start to slow down um, because there just isn't enough of that like, new project sloshing around happening like it was in the past. And so where this comes back to the other end of the spectrum, these higher touch go to markets is that I think what I'm seeing is that companies that really cross the chasm into the enterprise and embrace that higher touch go to market where you have professional services and a very consultative sale, those companies somewhat counterintuitively are performing really well in this environment. And I think the reasons for that are a couple fold. Like first would be those companies tend to be selling to largely like non-technology businesses. And we all know that technology businesses have been hit the hardest by, by the environment that we're in. But the second is that I think those companies that did build those like enterprise focused, like very high touch go-to markets, uh, with that also comes a level of qualification with your customers that I think is really healthy in an environment like this, where only like really mission critical stuff is happening. If an enterprise is going to really engage with you in a way that they're going to give you access to their environment, they're going to allocate resources on their side to getting your project done. And they're going to also pay you for the professional services and implementation costs of your product. If you think about how time consuming that is for them, the bar for them to want to go and do that and allocate that time towards it is really high. So what I've seen more and more of is these high-touch enterprise businesses are just performing really well in this environment. And I think the reason for it is because the enterprise has to put serious skin in the game as a customer to even start that process off. And to put that skin in the game, they have to have a lot of conviction and belief that the project is going to lead to something good. And so I think that's something that I find myself telling founders more and more is embrace that higher touch, go to market, go up market if the opportunity is there. And just don't shy away from professional services. Like, of course, you don't want to build a business that's, say, 50% services for a variety of reasons. It's not going to be valued the same as, like, a more of a product company. But at the same time, like, if you can get kind of 10 to 20% of your revenue coming from professional services and those professional services, like, help you open up and develop a category, let's say you're creating a new category or just get these really large, high-complexity deals done with bigger companies, then I think it's a wonderful tool and it should be used accordingly.
0: This is actually, it goes very... Well, with the kind of idea of maybe not just the company, sir, but I think you maybe called it like big build idea where in reality, what you're doing is a very high touch design partnership with companies in order to develop the initial kind of version of the product. And while maybe you're not charging for professional services, you are performing these professional services in engagement. And I found that if you kind of squint a little bit, a lot of these high-touch go-to-market engagements and actually the work with design partners in the early days in order to design forest look awfully alike. Do you agree with that kind of sentiment?
1: I agree that the design partners that you engage with have a tremendous impact on the trajectory of your company, meaning picking the right ones is absolutely critical. And then there's this question, do you want them all to look alike or do you want them to look different? And I think there's different schools of thoughts on this. Like one is if I have five design partners that have the same needs, the same type of environment and the same sort of requirements, then the consistency with which I can make decisions about how I develop my product and the trade offs that I make can then be applied to all five of those design partners. And then I can develop a high degree of confidence about the segment of the market that those five design partners embody. On the other hand, I think that the design partners you choose, there is some value to having a little bit of heterogeneity of that in the sense that you get to understand different segments of the market through that individual design partner as a vessel for that segment. And I think as a result, you can actually gather a lot more information that allows you to then decide which of those subsequent segments of the market you ultimately want to place your initial bets on from a go-to-market standpoint. Let's talk a
0: little bit about the future and some of the areas that you're personally are the most excited about in kind of infrastructure. What are some of those?
1: Yeah. So I think the first that I'd call out is uh, taking a step back. If you're a software company today and you're building a new application, more likely than not, you are at least considering, if not gravitating towards writing both your backend and your front-end in TypeScript. And this is a huge change from and where we were, say, five, six years ago. And I think the reasons for it, the drivers for it, are just the developer experience with TypeScript is so good. And the infrastructure and platforms that are being built to enable you to run your applications that are built in TypeScript are also like improving very dramatically. And so one of the trends that I'm really excited about is just reimagining this application infrastructure stack for a world where developers build their front-end and their back-end in TypeScript. That's a big one. And this is, of course, like a space where you think of companies like Netlify, like Versailles. I recently partnered with a seed stage company called Oven that is building a back-end JavaScript runtime called Bun that I think is going to be a really exciting one in this space. But then you also have the databases, the message queues, The monitoring infrastructure, like all of that stuff has to be tailored to this way of doing things, this sort of full-stack TypeScript way of doing things. And so I'm really excited about companies that see the opportunity the way I do there and are thinking about building for that specific persona in mind. And this kind of like broadly maps to what I think is like a really big theme of the next five to 10 years in infrastructure, which is that I believe we're going to move away from a world of big three cloud providers, harnessing a lot of our applications to a world where you have application-specific cloud providers that specialize either in a type of language or a type of application or even a type of end user or developer. And I think that what we're seeing in kind of the TypeScript and JavaScript world here is a first instantiation of that. But I suspect there's a lot more to come. And you can imagine segueing into like language models and all the interesting stuff that's happening in AI right now. I believe there's going to be a very specific ecosystem of infrastructure services that target this audience of people building applications around language models. By the way, not that
0: um, I'm an investor or even try to play one, actually I agree with both both sentiments that you said it's amazing how we're recording this episode a couple of hours after twitter released or open source it's ranking algorithm and i actually completely forgot that twitter is doing, based in scala and actually our company we started building our services in scala. and at some point we just realized like the types of the ecosystem is just so much rich and like all the things that we can get with maybe functional programming is either TypeScript will catch up or it's actually don't really make you that much more competitive as a start and now our entire stack obviously both on the front end and the back end is TypeScript and no one is looking back. I think we had these language wars for a while and yeah, it seems like there are some language, Python seems to win the kind of data and the AI wars. And JavaScript or TypeScript won kind of pretty much everything else.
1: But what I think is interesting about your point about Python and being like the increasingly language of choice for data teams and AI teams is what you're starting to see is that in the AI ecosystem, a lot of these tools, they're starting out by being very like Python first. But very quickly, what they're having to do is then extend to TypeScript because ultimately the way this technology is going to make an impact is it's going to find its way into all the software that we use. And the people building the software are working in TypeScript. And so there's this like really interesting question there as to... Does TypeScript become even more dominant and more prevalent in what data teams are doing? And I think we're a long ways off from knowing the answer to that, but it's really interesting to see how projects like Langchain, for example, have really blown up since actually like enabling TypeScript developers to take advantage of their products. And I think there's a lot more of that to come. And I think it's a really exciting trend. I'm guessing a lot has already been said on this podcast about what's happening with language models and AI. That's obviously very exciting. And again, I think there's some very infrastructure-specific implications there. Just having scalable access to GPU compute is like a really challenging proposition. And I think there's so many different cuts of that problem that are going to appeal in different segments of the market. So of course, like things like SageMaker and, and what Amazon and the big cloud providers are doing it is going to find its way into a lot of big companies. But then I think there's who's going to build the Netlifier of for GPU compute, for example. And will that product be just GPU compute or will it have CPU compute as well and more target Python development in general? These are the questions that I ask a lot when I think about what those next infrastructure platforms look like. And the AI space is obviously like a catalyst for what I expect to be a lot of new innovation. The other area that I think is really interesting is this like unbundling of the data warehouse, meaning in the old world as in like now, most companies standardize all of their data analysis on a platform like Snowflake and maybe they have Spark or something like that to handle some of their tasks that don't fit as well into SQL. But we're living in a world where you have one data platform to rule them all. And what you're starting to see now is that customers are looking for more flexibility. They may have a workload where, you know, certain attributes are relevant. Maybe they care a lot about cost, but they don't care about performance. Conversely, maybe they care a lot about performance, but they don't care about cost. There's all these different edge cases there that I think are speaking to this opportunity to build an architecture for these customers that allow them to bring the best query engine to the job. So I might want Trino for one thing. I might want to use DuckDB for another thing. To do that, of course, I have to have a storage layer that is query engine agnostic. And this is where these, these projects like, like Iceberg and Pudi really come in and start to open up the way that I can bring new query engines to my data while maintaining relational guarantees over that data but using the power of S3 as the underlying storage or just object storage in the cloud in general as my storage layer. And if you think about what Snowflake is, it's like your data is in S3 and it's being managed by Snowflake using a custom format, and then they have their own vectorized query engine. I think you're going to see all those pieces start to be broken up and you're going to see customers start to build their own analytical systems to fit a given use case. And that's going to become much easier to do. And there's commercial vendors pushing each of these open source projects forward that I think have this ambition in mind.
0: There are... Things that we already see there is a separation. Like, for example, between the UI layer, if we talk about the BI tools and the query engine layer, and we see now with the, let's say, the kind of semantic models in between, that now we see more and more layers. And there's no reason why this cannot go all the way down to storage. That's actually a very interesting way to think about database and the data warehouses.
1: Whether it's a semantic layer or it's going from monoliths to microservices. The one thing I'm very certain of about infrastructure is we have this habit of either bundling things or unbundling things. And it just depends on the space that you're in and where you're out in that cycle. But one of those two things tends to be happening and I find it fascinating and also like very predictable. Got it.
0: So maybe Baki, if people want to chat to you to pitch you an idea, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, they can email me first name at clangalperkins.com. would love to hear from you. If I don't think it's a fit, I will respond and give you some feedback as to why. I'm on Twitter at Bucky Moore and I lurk around in this Discord as well. I look forward to seeing you all there. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us
0: today. And it was a great conversation. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thanks, Vitaly.